How's everybody doing with uh, the COVID curve? You don't know what I'm talking about. I'll tell you what I mean. What I mean by the COVID curve is this uh, sine wave that I know that I've been living on uh, since March 11th, which was the day that we realized we were going to cancel gatherings. And by the way, I remember in March telling myself and some of our team, I was like, hey, guys, we might have to get, think about the idea that we would cancel church for a whole week. <laughs> so sad, right? So since March 11th, uh, when we had to make that decision, or March 12th, I know I've been living in the curve, and the curve is like the mood swings between, this is the worst thing ever, and I don't know if I'm going to make it as a human being, and we should just burn the whole thing down, and then like an hour later, I'm fine, and it's like, you know what, I get to watch more Netflix, right? Um, for me, the top of the curve, uh, it looks sometimes like this, I'm at home, and I'm really sad about the fact that I can't be with the people that I love the way that I want to be with the people that I love, and I can't go travel or have some kind of adventure, and I start thinking about all these things that are lost, but then I tell myself, you know what I can do? I go downstairs to the basement, and I log into Netflix on my computer, and I turn my studio monitors up all the way, and then I look for Justin Timberlake's Netflix special with Tennessee Kids, I light some candles. I text my neighbors preemptively, and I say, it's going to get loud. Let me know if it's a problem because we share a wall. And I sit there, and I start listening to JT and the Tennessee Kids, and before I know it, I'm, like, jumping in the basement by myself. And then I get self-conscious for a minute because there's a public sidewalk that goes right by where I live, and you can see into my basement. And I think there's people walking by watching this madman jumping up and down to Justin Timberlake. And then I think, no, sucks to be them, right? I'm the one having a good time. So that's me at the best during covid uh, the bottom of the curve for me looks like yesterday, for example, uh, when I was at my gym, and I've been going to the gym because it's like, what else are you going to do right now? I don't know. Uh, so I've been trying to like channel frustration and negative energy and all this stuff towards some healthy habits. And so I'm upstairs on the, the running level balcony uh, track of the gym where they have the rowing machines placed for greater distance during COVID. So I'm up there all by myself, many, many, many feet away from other people who are working out. And I'm on the rowing machine and uh, I start listening to some music and this song comes on and it just gets me. You know what I mean? And I realize I'm crying. I'm actually crying on the rowing machine at the gym, which is like the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life, right? And so I'm up there hoping that nobody comes by and notices me, and my face mask is now soaked not just with sweat but sadness, right? And I can, like, taste the saltiness in my face mask because I'm up there crying on the rowing machine just thinking about, like, friends who are struggling and, um, like, some marriages that are having a really hard time right now during COVID and some people who have lost their jobs during COVID and some people who's... Um, uh, already sort of fragile medical situation has been made worse by the fact that healthcare is harder to access right now and other friends who are on the front lines of healthcare themselves trying to take care of these people and just all of the burdens and all the bodies that are stacking up right now. And I'm just really sad. That's kind of been the curve for me. Uh, is that ring a bell? I'm curious, like, anybody shout at me if you're at, like, the Justin Timberlake phase of the curve tonight. Is there anybody there? Yeah, some of you? Okay. Are you almost, like, shy, like you're having a good time but you don't want to admit it? That's fine. Uh, what about anybody, anybody in the crying on the rowing machine phase of COVID right now? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's some of you there too. Yeah. Well, thanks for um, expressing some solidarity with me there. It's also a way that I just tricked you into answering last week's sacred question, where are you? If you are here last week, you know um, that we're returning to a practice that's been a part of our life together. Uh, we call it sacred questions. Uh, it's based on our conviction that while we don't know why God doesn't always alleviate difficult circumstances and while it can be hard to hold on to belief and why there's all kinds of um, questions we might have for God, we discover that God sometimes brings some questions to us 
And it seems that these are questions that God asks because God is rooting for us to grow and heal and change and become the kind of people that we are meant to be. And so like a good spiritual director or counselor or friend or parent, we find God in the scriptures often showing up with people with simple but profound questions that seem to crack them open and do some work. And we want to put ourselves in the position to hear some of those questions right now because, frankly, I think a lot of us are already cracked open by everything going on. So if we're already opened up a little bit, what if we uh, seize the opportunity to let God do some work and use even the difficulty of the things that we're walking through right now to help us become who we are here to become? So last week we asked the question, where are you? I know, right? We asked the question, where are you? Uh, because there's no point in praying or trying to grow if you're not going to like own where you are. There's no point in trying to meet God in some place that you're not. So it's really good to stand in the middle of your actual life, not the life you wish you had, but the one that you have, not the life um, that you like would be more proud of than the one you have, but the one that you have right now. Not to wish that you were in some place that you're not, but to be right where you are and to meet God right where you are, because uh, where else could you start, right? And today uh, we want to look at another question. This is one that Jesus asks someone. And I think uh, it won't take much work for us to find ourselves uh, in a place where the same question lands us, on, on us in a, in a helpful way. So uh, we're going to turn to John chapter 5 in the Gospels uh, right up here. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. So he's in Jerusalem. That's kind of headquarters for everything, right? And uh, there it is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate, a pool which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, and one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Well, let's uh, talk about what's going on here uh, for a minute. So uh, it seems from archaeology and from other ancient storytelling that there really is um, some kind of pool uh, in Jerusalem at this time. And in fact, after uh, the Romans come in like a century later and take everything over and have their own society there, the Romans also have... uh, a sort of facility built around the same place. And for the Romans, it's built to this God who is known for, among other things, healing. But at this time, it's the Jews who are there in Jerusalem and they have this pool. And um, there's a, a sort of, a, what you might call sort of a mythical insert in the text, but not all the manuscripts have it. And what it says is that there was a belief at the time that occasionally an angel would come down and would stir the waters. And that when the angel stirred the water, if the first person who made their way into the water at the time that the waters were all stirred up would find themselves healed. There's other theories uh, that perhaps because this pool is fed with a spring, and by the way, like we found the remains of this pool. It's actually there today. Like you can see the remnants of this entire facade that was built around this, this public water work. Uh, one idea is that maybe the spring water that fed that, maybe there was some kind of geological feature or function that occasionally would disturb the waters. It's hard to say like what's really going on beneath the scenes, but what we know for sure is that people come to this pool and many of them come with the hope or the expectation of some kind of healing. And this person, we are told, um, for 38 years has been unwell in some way, and he's there at the pool. Uh, it, the text, the translation there uses the word invalid. That's, uh, it's kind of an awkward translation. It's not great. Um, the Greek word here is, is sort of a big, broad word for all sorts of um, unwellness, if you will. Uh, it's a word for uh, one whose strength is faltering. Uh, it's a word that's big enough and broad enough to include everything from like physical malady and chronic illness to, um, to mental health difficulties, like the whole gamut. Uh, we don't know what the specifics of this person's experience, but I actually think that's really helpful because it might make it even easier for you to find yourself there, right? I think it's easier for me to f- find myself there. Um, 
I've enjoyed the privilege of a fairly able body my whole life, but I've known all sorts of unwellness. Uh, if you've been around for a minute, you've heard me talk a lot about like mental health struggles that were a huge part of my college experience and they still come back from time to time. Uh, and we could go down the list of different ways that I, I have known what it is to be unwell. And maybe you've had some experience. Uh, maybe you're in it right now where you know what it's like to be unwell. Maybe you're unwell in mental health or body or in a relationship, or maybe you're unwell with your relationship to a substance or something you consume. I don't know what it is, but a lot of us know what it's like to be unwell. And frankly, during COVID, a lot of us are more aware of what it's like to be unwell because this whole experience that we were walking through, it just has this way of exacerbating things, doesn't it? Of making the bad things worse. So he's there and uh, he's unwell. And um, the more I just sort of imagined myself in this person's experience, the more I thought about a few of these layers that have stacked up to almost like make it worse for him. So first of all, 38 years of being unwell. 38 years of waking up every day and perhaps early on asking himself, am, am, I, is, am I still unwell? Is this thing that plagued me yesterday still with me today? Maybe 38 years of seeking uh, treatments or like ways of like fixing this thing. Maybe 38 years of giving your money away to somebody who could try to take care of you only to find out that they didn't know what they were doing. But 38 years, that kind of longevity will mess with you. Like I think it'll start to tell you that it's always going to be this way for you, right? But it's not just that he's got 38 years of dealing with this unwellness, whatever it is. It's also that he has 38 years or however long he's been going to the pool. Maybe he's not been going there the whole time, but for however long he's been going to the pool and seeing other people get made well. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, I know from a little bit of psychology that I've read and understood that the human brain um, does a lot of comparative kind of stuff. And the human brain is almost wired to assume that for you to get ahead means I'm getting behind that we're actually just sort of hardwired for this for some reason, that when we see somebody else getting ahead, one of the things it can do is it convinces you that there's less well-being for you. Like we've just been taught somewhere in our psyches and our souls and our bones that we live in a zero-sum universe. So that if somebody gets ahead, you get behind, and then he's there at this pool, and it seems that other people are getting well, but he isn't. So not only has he been unwell for a really long time, but for a while it seems he's seen other people get well, but that hasn't been for him. Uh, longevity, proximity, competition. Man, these are all things that like stack up on whatever way it is that maybe you're not who you want to be or how you want to be in the world. You don't feel like you're well, and this guy is facing all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then Jesus bumps into the guy. Let me show you what happens next in the text. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, watch this, do you want to get well? And that's the question I want us to hang out with for a little bit tonight. Jesus saw him lying there, learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, and he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, uh, I don't know about you, but when I sit situate myself in this narrative, my first thought is honestly like, are you kidding? Like, of course, like what a condescending question. Like, seriously, Jesus, like, do you think I would have dragged myself to this place where people are being healed 38 years into the sickness not want to be well? Why would you ask me that kind of question? But, like, one of the presumptions I bring to the text that keeps proving itself when I give it a chance to bear out is that Jesus always seems to know what he's doing. And sometimes the things that on the surface don't look very wise or good, if, if you sit with them for a moment, they tend to present themselves as very wise and very good. And so, like, I wonder if Jesus knows when he looks at this man that perhaps he's given up on the idea of being well. Or maybe he doesn't even know that he's unwell anymore. 
Like, have you ever sat with something that's not working in your life, like a pattern or a behavior or an illness, or like something that you, you've been with it for so long that you, you've actually like forgotten what it would be like to not have that issue in your life? You've forgotten what it would be like to, to not be facing that difficulty. So like, I don't know, maybe he's just decided like this is what life is. This is what I am. This is what I'm here for. And maybe he asked the question to like awaken a fresh imagination in this person to remember that there isn't such a thing as being whole, being healed, being well. Or maybe he asked the guy the question uh, as a way of saying, do you know that it doesn't have to be this way? Like whatever you've resigned yourself to, do you know that it doesn't have to be this way? Maybe he asked the question because he's curious if this person believes that he's, um, he's eligible for well-being. Like, yeah, maybe the other ones, the ones who make it into the pool, maybe they're eligible. But, but like, am I a candidate for well-being? Does my life matter enough to be eligible for that kind of goodness, for wholeness, for healing? Uh, Jesus looks at a man who, it seems, would have an obvious answer to the question, but, like, I wonder if there's, in fact, a lot of good reasons that Jesus asks, um, do you want to be well? Now, there's some important disclaimers while we work this out, because I want to be really careful about a couple of things. Um, I don't want to, like, step on the landmines of, like, some of that, like, prosperity gospel. Like, if you have enough faith, you will be well. And the reason that you're not well is you don't have enough faith because I think that can be really harmful and really dangerous, right? It's, like, it's bad enough that you're not well, but on top of that, a preacher gets up here and tells you, if you just believed enough, if you were good enough at believing, you wouldn't be facing this anymore. And I don't believe that at all. Because I've known people with towering faith who have faced the worst kinds of things. And I've known people with no faith at all that don't seem to have any problems. So, like, I think that equation breaks down. And what a, a horrible, terrible, sadistic burden to put on a person who's already struggling with whatever is unwell in their life. So I don't mean that at all. This is not to shame you in whatever way you feel unwell, whether the thing that you are facing is physical or mental or emotional or relational or substance abuse. I don't know what it is, but I'm not here to shame you for it. I'm not here to tell you that God's looking down on you for it. I'm not here to tell you that you got there because of something that you did, because I don't know how you got there. Maybe it was no fault of your own. I don't want to stumble into all of that. And yet we still have Jesus asking the question, like, do you want to be well? And so I feel like we should still try to find a way to hear this question and ask ourselves, do we want to be well? Um, the man has a response to Jesus. He explains his situation. He says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Well, that's a bummer. Like, there's this thing happening right in front of him, but he doesn't have any access to it. And sometimes when I read this text, I feel this great empathy for this person. I think, oh, man. Like, the, the hurt is piling up. Not only is he unwell, but, like, nobody comes along to help the guy. And then there's other days when I think, oh, man. I know I've had moments in my life where I made such peace with whatever was wrong with me or whatever was um, in need of healing. Like, I, I actually, like, made friends with it to the point that when somebody came along and proposed that I could find my way out of it, I was like, no, I kind of like it over here. <laughs> you ever been there? You ever had anybody try to help you with anything that really needed fixed and, like, you realize you kind of liked the way things were because you made more peace with whatever was dysfunctional in your life uh, and you weren't sure you wanted to take the advice or take the steps or do the things the person asked? I don't know. So I, I don't know what's going on with this guy. One thing I love about these gospel stories is there's all this room for you to interpret. That's a good thing. You might read this text differently than I do. 
Um, you might have great empathy for this person. I might think he's playing the victim or maybe the other way around. I don't know. You can find your own place inside the story and your own reading of it, but I just want to observe there are all these possibilities here. A man has been unwell for 38 years. Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he's got a story about why it's not available for him. And then the next thing that Jesus does is interesting, and it's actually sort of anticlimactic. Next slide, he just says to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat, and he walked. Just that, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat, and he walked. And I have read this story over and over again in this past week, and I keep, like, wondering things. Like, is Jesus annoyed at the excuses? <laughs> or is his heart broken open with empathy for this guy? Right? Um, did, like, something, like, super magical happen in the moment? Like, if you had been there, would it have felt like a David Copperfield experience? Like, were there fireworks and, like, this profound experience of the power of God that everybody looked at and said, wow, that's the power of God? Or did the guy just get up and discover that he could walk and then ask himself, when did that happen and how did I miss it? Right? I don't know. But uh, the more I sat with the story, the more I also thought of a friend of mine. And uh, a story of hers and a turning point in her life um, that feels so much like the experience that this poor guy has at the pool. Yeah. <laughs> so my friend Ruthie uh, uh, is this dear woman um, who when she was in high school, she was driving uh, out on a rural road. And uh, as she's driving, an ambulance hits her car on the driver's side at 65 miles an hour. Now, you've seen the size, the heft of an ambulance, right? And you can imagine what happens when an ambulance going 65 miles an hour smacks right into the side of your car. And the thing that you would expect to happen is she's not here anymore, right? But she is here. Uh, although her neck was broken, her spleen exploded, and she found herself facing a really, really scary road ahead. And she had something like a 1% chance of walking, but through a really good surgeon who knew what they were doing, uh, they were able to kind of put some things back together. And she comes out of that uh, horrific accident um, with a lot of work ahead, but with her life still in her hands. Uh, years, though, of uh, chronic pain management and therapy to get herself back to the point where she could walk and get on with her days. And uh, after several years of the hard work of healing, she's uh, sort of minding her own business one day, uh, getting ice cream, when this sharp shooting pain begins to shoot through her body from her brain on down. And she goes and sees doctors and uh, at first they say, well, you just you had a really bad accident a few years ago and there's these phantom pains that will stick with your body. And uh, to make a, a long and harrowing story very short, eventually, after begging people to look at what was going on, they discovered that the very wire that they used to fuse her spine together, that the tip of it had broken off and lodged in her brainstem. So they say, we've got to go in there for another very scary, very dangerous surgery because this thing could kill you at any minute. And so she goes through uh, another round of this thing. And between the original accident and the original procedures and the, this new thing they find and the procedures that go along with that, the long story very short on Ruthie is that she spent years um, loaded on the maximum doses of every kind of chronic painkiller you can imagine and years in bed. Uh, through that time, she falls in love and gets married, but the marriage suffers under um, just the burden of that chronic pain that she is carrying. And um, you read her story that she's written in a really beautiful memoir called There I Am. And as you go through the pages with her, you, you feel this vitality that wants to live itself in her life. And then you also see um, something like her, her will to desire anything better for herself, like being snuffed out little by little by these circumstances that she didn't choose 
they weren't from a lack of faith or anything that she had done wrong, and yet um, it's like she becomes a shadow as you read the story. And the interesting thing about Ruthie's um, story of chronic pain and healing is that the turning point um, wasn't actually a fantastic doctor, even though she has some really good doctors through the story, and thank God for good doctors, right? And the turning point wasn't um, getting the right medication finally dialed in. And frankly, the turning point wasn't some, like, charismatic religious experience where somebody laid hands on her and, like, boom, something happened. The turning point for her was simply a moment when her brother looked at her. She'd been living with her brother and her sister-in-law for a little while, and her brother looked at her after seeing her just sink into the couch day after day after day and the color fading from her life. Her brother just looked at her and said, Ruthie, do you want to live? She said, Yes. And if you read her story, that was actually the turning point. Just that. Like the whole book, you can divide, literally the book, because she wrote the memoir, which is helpful. But like the whole book, you can divide from everything before that moment to the moment when her brother just in the right moment looked her in the eye and said, hey, what, do you want to get better? Or do you want to just resign yourself to this pain? Now, it's not that the pain went away right away, but something shifted inside her. Something in her will shifted. Something in her spirit shifted when she was given a chance to evaluate whether she was content to continue resigning herself to the way things were or whether she believed she was eligible for something better, whether she believed she was capable of something better, whether she realized she was a candidate for something better. And I just suspect that that's Jesus' spirit when he sees this guy. Like, I can do all these powerful, wonderful things for you, but you've got to decide, do you want to get better or do you want to keep resigning yourself to the way you are and the way things are. And I think um, I've had to answer this question several times in the last six months or so as I bump into patterns, habits, and ways of being me that are not great. And when that happens, you can hang your head and say, I guess this is just the way I am and this is just the way things are. Or you can say, I think I'm actually eligible for better than this. I think I'm a candidate for for more than this. I think like God loves me enough and you enough and every human life enough that God wants us to be well. Now, I don't know if the thing that you are struggling will like go away, whether it's physical or emotional. I, I don't know if it will go away, but I do think we have choices to make about whether we will let the things that make us unwell be the final word on our lives or not. And Jesus comes to the man and he says, hey, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? And then there's no fireworks. There's no big dramatic event. <laughs> he, the guy gives um, sort of an excuse. Jesus sort of disregards it and just says, hey, get up. Get on your feet and walk. Now, there's one more note in the story. And you should go read John 5 uh, this week sometime. And uh, don't take my word for it. Um, but what's interesting about this whole thing is that Jesus says, get up, take your mat, right, and walk. But this is happening on the Sabbath. And uh, on the Sabbath, um, for the time and the place where this person finds himself, uh, carrying your mat on the Sabbath is strictly prohibited. Because uh, part of the Jewish people's understanding of what Sabbath meant for them and not doing any work on the Sabbath meant you do not carry your mat on the Sabbath. So uh, you have a man who um, finally has a moment where he turns toward wellness and healing. And the thing that Jesus tells him to do, the first step that he takes will not just be a step toward healing, but it will be a step upstream against all of these cultural currents going the other direction. It's actually going to be a disruption for the people around him, and they're not going to be very happy with the steps that he takes toward his own healing. 
If you've ever been with somebody, like whether you or somebody you love, and you see them take a step toward healing, you might have discovered that when we decide to get well, we're going to have to walk upstream a little bit. Like, uh, has anybody ever discovered uh, that your sobriety was more disruptive for the world around you and the people around you than your addiction? Because we all have a way of just sort of like agreeing to go along with the way things are, but when they change, it gets really scary, right? Or maybe your marriage isn't well. Maybe it's not working. And the day that you decide you want it to get well is the day it actually gets harder. It gets a little complicated because you're going to start like not resigning yourself to the way things are, but saying like maybe God wanted this marriage to be better than it is today, right? By the way, like it's not just a ways that you're not well or the ways that I'm not well, but it's the ways that we are not well. And there's all sorts of ways that we are not well. Like have you read the news? Are you hearing anything that's happening in the world at all right now? And when you do, do you just have this sense inside which says we are not well? And um, do you ever feel the way your resolve can diminish and we just resign ourselves to the way things are? And I suspect during this mess uh, of a moment that we are living in right now that perhaps Jesus is saying to South Bend or to the United States or to the world at large, hey, do you want to get well? Because you're pretty sick. I love you. I'm not saying that to shame us, but come on, like just things are not great, right? And perhaps like the word for us to hear isn't just for your life or mine, but it's our life and our world that we're building together. Like things are not well. And um, if we want to respond to the word of Jesus and get up and walk, we might find out that we got to walk upstream. That we got to disrupt some things. That as we decide that we will be invested in the wellness of our world rather than the sickness of our world, we might discover that everything that's sick in this world resists the steps that we want to take. But we should still take them. I have been there. I've been in um, traditional hospital rooms. I have been in um, psychiatric hospital rooms. I have been um, there at late nights. I have been in actual jail cells. I've been um, there when she walked out or he walked out. I've been there when the person decides it's time to talk about their substance issues. I have been there um, in all these different ways that somebody says, I'm, f- I'm finally done being sick. I want to be well. And I got to tell you guys, like, um, I think we need more than our will. I think God's grace shows up in our will. But something happens when the human will wakes up. Something happens when a decision is made inside. Something happens when that choice rises up that says, I don't want it to be like this anymore. And I don't, like, have all the metaphysical mechanics worked out. And I don't know why sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's easy. And I don't know why sometimes you feel like you got the wind at your back and sometimes you don't. But I'm telling you, I've been there so many times and I've seen that look in a person's eye when they decide, I want to be well. I want to believe this life is eligible for healing and wholeness. I want to believe God loves me enough to want me to be well and walk with me in that direction. And when the will wakes up and when that decision is made, something divine happens, something powerful happens. And I suspect that's why Jesus looks at this man who after 38 years might have given up on it and says, you want to wake up in there? You want to wake up and get up and start walking? You might face some resistance, but you could be well too. Keep thinking of that old um, line from the saint who says, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And I don't know what has happened uh, to you to dim your faith in that beautiful future, um, but I believe in it for you and for us. I believe Jesus believes in it. And um, I hope this week would be that maybe you'd sit with this question a little bit. Do you want to be well?
Do you want to be whole, healed, alive? Do you want love to flow through your life? Do you want all the ways that we have contorted ourselves into our sickness to be changed so that we can walk um, upright and bravely into the future that we are here for? Do you want to be well? Like, You sit with that question for a moment. Take it with you into the quiet parts of your day, uh, which I know for many of you right now with kids at home and COVID is if you're lucky, the shower or the toilet, whatever. <laughs> Wherever you find those quiet moments in your day, uh, as your friend, pastor, however you see me up here, like, man, I would like beg you. <laughs> Let this question, question work on you for a moment because I don't think things have to be the way they are. 